What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. Welcome to episode 12 of the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where I sit down with some of America's greatest leaders and find out how they have led with their faith out in front. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike Lynch, and it is my honor to be on this leadership journey with you. We are all on a journey trying to figure out how to be the best leaders that we can be so we can be the leaders that God has created us to be. You know, one of the things I've enjoyed each month is the diversity of all the people we've talked to. There's been people from journalism. There's been people from athletics. There's been people from the world of sports that maybe not on the playing field, but they're in the sporting world. There's been people in the business world. There's been pastors. There's been people from really every different walk. And it's just such a great reminder. Though we may all do different things during the day, the name tag or the title on the front of us may be a little different, but behind the scenes, we're all trying to be a spiritual leader, not just a person that, for me, I'm a pastor for a living, not just a person that that talks about God and Jesus on Sundays, but lives Jesus Monday through Saturday and lets my faith drive the kind of man and the kind of person that I am. Well, today in episode 12, you're going to get a privilege. You're going to get a privilege to sit down with a great friend of mine. Back in the fall of 1987, I moved to Lynchburg, Virginia to attend Liberty University to play baseball. Moving in the same week that I moved in was a young man. He was going to be a junior. He had transferred in from Lewisburg Junior College in North Carolina, and he transferred into Liberty as a junior. His name was Tony Beasley. Little did I know that that guy that I was going to meet in dorm 18 on the campus of Liberty University, how he was going to shape the kind of person that I really want to be as well. Tony went on and had a great baseball career, finished with the Pittsburgh Pirates organization. After stopping with the Pirates organization, he got right into coaching. He's managed at every level of the minor leagues and the Pirates organization and the Nats organization. He's been a third base coach for the immortal Hall of Fame baseball player, Frank Robinson, with the Washington Nationals. He has been the third base coach for the Pittsburgh Pirates, and minor league infield coordinator, and now he's the third base coach for the Texas Rangers. But Tony's a lot more than a baseball coach. Tony is a guy, and and when I use this phrase, I want you to get it right, he gets it. He gets what life's about. He's been manager of the year multiple times in the minor league, so he is a great leader of young men. But more than that, he's just a great man. So today, I want you to clear a little bit of time. Tony's not only achieved a lot, Tony has overcome a lot. And you're going to get to listen in today. So pull up a chair and listen in to my conversation with my good friend, Tony Beasley. Well, Tony, it is an honor to have you on Lynch with a Leader, buddy. (laughs) It's good to be here, Mike. Thank you for having me. 
it's been a long time. In fact, we were talking before we went on the air. I remember we met in the fall of 1987 at Liberty <laughs> University. You were coming right out of JUCO. That's I was right. coming up as a freshman. You know, during that time we were together at Liberty, there were some there were some spiritual things even then, Tony, that began to happen in your life, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, actually when, when I, you know, I, I grew up in the church and uh, my, my parents, they, they raised me in the church and they raised me to be God fearing. However, I just, I just felt like this, that I was still in a religious state. And uh, I went two years of junior college and I knew about God and I didn't realize that I didn't really know God. Mm-hmm. And uh, when my experience at Liberty in 87 was when Josh McDowell was there actually speaking to us for those three days at Monday through Wednesday. And that Wednesday night, uh, the Lord broke me down and, and let me realize that I needed a personal relationship with Christ and I need to really surrender my life to him. And uh, that's when I really started to understand what a quiet time was, what, what, what Bible study was, what really jumping into the word and what prayer and meditation was all about. And really getting connected to God and getting to know him for myself. And so it was that year in 87 that I really found God for myself and knew who he was. And, and you you leave Liberty. So you spent two years at Liberty. You get drafted. And you entered the you entered the minor leagues, man. You spent nine seasons mm-hmm. jumping up and down in different levels of the minor leagues. Yeah. What was that experience like for you? And how did your faith end up playing into that experience? Well, I think without without my faith, I probably wouldn't have lasted those nine years. Um, it, it was a grind. Um, you know, the first year was a culture, was a culture shock because, first of all, I thought getting drafted. I'm a professional baseball player now, and you know, your life changes financially. You think, and you know, you you start to be able to just start a new life and have things that you that you want and desire in life, but. That was not the case. Uh, I, I was I, I woke up into a world of of just a free for all of, of of trying to make it from day to day and and survive financially from day to day. And there were no guarantees, and there were I don't know hundreds of guys that wanted my job. So there was no guarantees of success or what have you. So all I had was my faith, and I believed that God had a plan for my life. And that if I just live every day and try to be pleasing to him, that he would open doors and that he would find favor uh, with me. And uh, that's kind of how I went about uh, my, my days in the minor leagues. I, I've had some some situations where I was like, I don't know that I'm going to make it out of spring training because, <laughs> you know, you, you really understand how the draft works. Then you understand the first round picks and the second round picks and how they get priority over everybody as far as playing time is concerned. So you don't really know where you stand and you really have no control over what's going to happen the next year. Are they going to keep you? Are you going to repeat the level? Are you going to get, you know, promoted? So you just got, you really got to walk in faith. And and I just, I just, I'm thankful that I, I found the Lord at Liberty University and was able to have that type of stability in my life to know that God had a plan that I needed to trust him. And I, I just felt like I could go through life without having to worry about things. Man, it's so good. You know, so I know you got drafted by the Orioles and you spent some time in the Orioles system and also the Pirates system. You made the all-star team a couple times. Was it hard when you got to the end of it all, Tony, and you didn't stick in the bigs, which is every guy's dream that they, that they make it and then they land in the big leagues. Was that a hard, was that a hard transition for you? It was difficult because uh, those first couple of years with the Orioles, you know, 
Uh, I played well, and my second year I played well, and I was considered a young prospect coming through the system. Uh, I, I do understand that baseball, there was a much different time back then as far as how we there was the free agency market. There was not a lot of free agency. So most of the time, your big league club stayed intact until guys got old and retired. So the movement was much less at that time period as it was, as it is now. Uh, maybe if I got drafted today, I'm, I'm in the big leagues. But, yeah. you know, you get behind guys back in the 80s and in the 90s and, and you just, you can't move. So no matter how you're doing, it's hard to progress up the ladder. Uh, so that was difficult. Uh, but I did scratch and claw my way up to AAA. Uh, up to 1997, I was in Calgary. And in 93, actually, I got a, a brief stand in Buffalo due to an injury. And I was told if I'm playing well and, and something happens, I'll be the guy they call up. And I was playing well and something happened and I wasn't the guy they called up. So, mm -hmm. yeah, there are a lot of ups and downs. There are a lot of emotional, uh, you know, free falls and the things that can really take you uh, emotionally to places that you like, you just get disgusted and frustrated. Uh, and so that's why I say without, without Christ and, and having some, 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 some root in my life and, you know, something that, that's stable uh, to keep me grounded. I don't know that I could have stuck it out that long, uh, but I just, I don't know. I just felt like you know, I got to a point where triple a was there in 97. I went back down to double a, and then they asked me to go and, and help Chad Hermanson uh, play the infield. So that's when I realized that coaching was in the future for me in, in their eyes, anyhow. And so I just did that. And I realized that once I became a free agent, I was married then, had a son. I didn't want to bounce around. I wanted some yeah. stability in my life. So they offered me a job uh, to stay in the game. And I just wanted to see if I wanted to coach. I didn't know if I wanted to coach. <laughs> But then I had the opportunity, and yeah, it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. How, how do you think your life that you spent in all different levels, some mm -hmm. years uber successful, other years that weren't as successful as some of them may have been, you weren't, you weren't a high round, you weren't a super low round, you're sort of right there, 19th round, right in the right. middle of the draft. How do you think all that played into God preparing you for this life that you're still in all these years today? Well, because he put me right in the middle and, and that's, and that's what God, you know, he knows. And that's the thing about God. You know, he, he has the master plan. Uh, he sits high and looks low and he, he can, he knows what, what's going to happen years ahead. And so he knows where to place us and he puts us in places and we have to learn to be content. And because you know, by him, might put me in the front and didn't put me in at the very end. He put me right in the middle. So I could kind of experience the little, lukewarm situation you're you know you go up you go down you shower the fence you do this you, you see all both sides of it and uh but you kind of caught there and hung up in the middle you can't really control your destiny you can't really move like you want to move uh, but you got to trust god he put me in this position where i felt like i just had to trust him and uh and that's one thing i'm glad that i knew because if i didn't know that i had to trust god I probably couldn't have sustained it. Uh, he put me in a situation where, you know, when when it came to performance enhancing time, uh, where, where I've seen some of that in my minor league days, do I try that and try to get myself over the, you know, over the hump or to a next level and surpass some guys because of uh, doing things that are legal? But I, I had enough God to say not to do that because that mm -hmm. wasn't, you know, what He had in store for me. I just believe that God would open doors for me. 
And he would ultimately put me where I needed to be. And I just trusted that. You know, I think all of us, everybody's familiar with the bigs. I think everybody, even if they're not baseball fans, they're familiar with the major leagues. What right. is something about the minor leagues that you would that you would say most people don't understand, but it would be helpful for them to know about these young men that some that are right out of college, some that are yeah. right out of high school, and some that are from overseas that have just turned 17, 18 years old. What's something about the minor minor leagues that would be good for people to understand? Well, I think first of all, you have to understand that those these are guys that they're, they're kids. They're just young kids, and they really they're trying to find their way through life, just like anybody that just graduated from high school and start and go straight to the workforce, or someone that just graduated from college and is looking for a job and trying to get into their career. Um, this is no different. Uh, they're just young kids, you know, trying to find their way and trying to get their niche and seeing if they belong. Some of them, can I do this? They're, they're not confident. Um, they have no control. And the thing is, I think most people think that, uh, minor league players are wealthy and, and set with their futures financially, but they're not, you know, yes, the number one and number two pick here, those guys have a big signing bonus. But we, they make eight hundred fifty dollars a month. Yeah, that's that's a base salary, and you know there was actually been a lawsuit to try to enhance that and 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 get that uh, the salary up to par. But you work long hours, and it, it, it's one hundred and forty two games, uh, one hundred forty games in the minor league level, and it, it's a grind. I mean, it's then the off season you're expected to train and, and be ready for spring training. Whereas you don't make money during the season. So when do you work and actually make money? So you still kind of rely on your parents and, and people to support you. Um, it's hard to, to start a family. You can be 24, 25 and thinking you're ready to get married, but you still, you can't do it while you're chasing that dream because you can't support a wife. You can't support, you know, a kid and you can't afford a home. So you just can't do things that make it conducive for you to really prepare and get your mind in one place uh, professionally is to, is, to, is to prepare to play professional baseball and try to work your way into the major leagues. It's, it's a tremendous grind. And I think people see the glory of it because they come to the game and they think that the game is, is all there is to it. But there's much more to it than just the game at 7 o'clock at night. You know, there's all the workouts. There's all the being there at 12 and 1 o'clock in the afternoon for the – the practices and by actually by seven o'clock, the guys are tired, you know, actually. And, um, and there's really no, no monetary reward uh, based on it. The reward is, is what could happen. Uh, the possibilities uh, of, of playing at the major league level and what could come from that. But if you don't make it there really and truly, some people feel like they've wasted a lot of years of their life. You know, and I know talent's a huge piece of this. Right? I think everybody yeah. gets that. What what's you know, you and we're gonna get into your managing part here in a second, but mm -hmm. as you look back as a player and now as a coach and a manager, especially in that minor league level, what are some things that have separated some of those that have stuck it out and made it from those that Man, they just couldn't, they couldn't take the grind of it. They couldn't right. take, you know, because all of them are talented. We all know right. that. I mean, they're, exactly. you know, a 19th round kid doesn't mean he ain't talented. He's incredibly exactly. talented. What are some of the other separators that you've seen yeah. athletically and even emotionally and, and all the other skills that they have? 
Yeah, I mean, first of all, like you said, talent. You know, talent's going to only take you so far. I always, I always say this, you know, talent is God's gift to you. What you do with your talent is your gift back to God. Um, there, there are so many intangibles, Mike. There are, you know, we, we always talk about, you know, determination, heart, focus, and things of that nature. Uh, but the thing is, you can't, there, some, some guys, you, there are things internally that you just can't teach. And, um, you know, guys have a will, a will to succeed and a willingness to sacrifice, uh, and to do extra, you know, do do the extra. Uh, you, you've got to give up a lot, actually, to to succeed uh, in this game, because you you've got to put some things aside. Uh, you can't run out with your friends and hang out. Uh, sometimes you got to put your your love life on hold. You gotta you gotta put a lot on hold to dedicate yourself to the craft, because baseball is a skilled sport, and you've got to work at it. Uh, you you can't just show up and think that you can play. Uh, you've got to get your rest. Uh, the grind of the season gets guys, and that's why I think the talent, the talent kind of catches up to you, because it's the grind, it's, it's the, the everydayness of it. It's the 140 games in a minor league season. You know, did you get your rest at night? You know, and things like that. Did you get something to eat? Did you get some things in your body? Uh, so the mental side of the game, I think, is the big separator. You know, the, the, the most important six inches in baseball is what's between your ears. Uh, and I think though that's what separates guys uh, that make it and guys that don't make it. Uh, you know, talent, I, 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 I like to take like Rick Eckstein as the perfect example. If you had to send him to a scouting combine or, or a trial camp, Rick Eckstein would never get a call from that camp. He doesn't run as fast as anyone. He doesn't throw very well. He's a little guy, no power. I mean, there's nothing about him physically that that you would say, I like him. But this guy is a gamer. He just has an instinct, a feel to play the game. Uh, he's a, he has a competitive spirit to where it's, and he's a student of the game. He studies the game, he studies his opponent, uh, he knows how before analytics was big like it is now. He knew how to position. You know, he he was a starting shortstop for the World Series St. Louis Cardinals. I mean, and this guy throws like a windmill from shortstop. And he know he doesn't have a strong arm, but he knows he has to catch and release. He know he knew that. He he understood his weaknesses, and he and he worked on his weaknesses, and he played towards his strengths. So under, he had so much of a mindset of understanding what I had to do to be successful. And I think a lot of times the kids nowadays, they have a hard time to being you know, good self-evaluators because most of the time baseball players are bad self-evaluators. You know, they only, because we preach so much, you know, find something positive and, and build on that, which is a great cliche, but you have to look at the whole picture and you have to be willing to say, I'm not good at this. I need to get better at this. You know, if I can conquer this right here, I can get to the next level. As opposed to just, you know, patting yourself on the back and say, well, I did this well, and I'm not so worried, much worried about that part of my game. So you got to understand your strengths, but you got to really understand your weaknesses and work on, you know, overcoming those weaknesses and trying to get to a point where you can be efficient day in and day out and be a consistent player. That's really good, Tony. I, you know, it's funny. You you go from playing to mm -hmm. making the transition in the, into the coaching role, and then mm -hmm. you begin managing. You begin managing yes. in 
what, 2001 and led your club yeah. to a 46-26 regular season record, yeah. first place finish. And then you spent many years being mm-hmm. incredibly successful in the minor league system. I know coach of the year, manager right. of the year, baseball America. What, in your view, what makes a great baseball manager at the minor league level, high school level, college level, pro level, you've seen them all. What yeah. makes, what makes a great manager? Well, you know, really it's very, for me, it's simple communication. I mean, I, and I, I just think if, if you're a good communicator and you have a heart for people, they, you, you know how to get the best out of them. Um, I, I've always took the, took the, took managing as, you know, I have a son and I understand my son as he as he got into age where, you know, I had to be a father where I was teaching him life lessons. Okay, I, I, I got to a point where I say, okay, I can do two things now. I can impose my will on him as his father and demand that he do certain things and just say, I'm your dad and do what I said and necessarily not what I do. Or I can just sit and talk with him and try to get him to understand you know, what I, what it is that we're talking about. What's the root here? Because when I leave that conversation with my son, I want him to understand something. I want him to have gained knowledge from what we just talked about, as opposed to, you know, my dad just came down hard on me, you know, and he shut me out pretty mm-hmm. much. But so, so we can, you could yell and scream and curse and do things like managers do and think that we're getting players' attention. But, you know, they turn us off. They shut us out. And they hear what they want to hear, and then it's over. You, they let you talk until you're done talking. But it's, it's really nothing was was nothing was gained out of that conversation. So I always feel like you have to be able to to speak to their hearts, and you speak truth. Uh, but you build right relationships first. Uh, when you build the right relationship, you can say what needs to be said because they know that you care about them. And once they know that you care. And everything that you talk to them about or say to them is for their for their betterment, something that's going to enhance their career or get them to a, a level that they haven't experienced yet. They're all in. They're all mm-hmm. in. And I've I always I always felt like it's a two way street. I want them to be to feel free to challenge me to be good at my job. I've always told players, don't ever do something because I said do it. Don't ever do it. I don't want that to be your base for just doing it. Because if someone asks a question, say, well, B said do this. No, that's not that's not a good answer. You know, I want you to understand why it's important for you. So challenge me to 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 get you to understand that, you know, this is going to benefit you because of this. You know, why should I, you know, why should I on defense, you know, show up for every pitch? Because I say it's show up for every pitch, or should I understand that information, anticipation, and application? is a formula that we use so as I can kind of know what my pitcher's doing and how hitters react to his sinker or what have you. And that's why I position myself a little more in the six hole because he gets ground balls there as opposed to just being vanilla and saying, well, this is why I usually play every day. So you have to kind of speak to them but speak truth to them. Uh, I remember a situation with Defonso Seriano in 2006. Uh, he stole third base. It was the ninth inning. No, excuse me. It was the eighth inning. Bottom of the eighth. We're in, we're in D.C. We're, I forget who we're playing. Maybe the Yankees. And it's two outs. He's on second. And we're down by one. Nick Johnson is hitting. Nick Johnson was one of our best hitters on the team. Left-handed hitter, too. Two outs. 
And so I'm coaching third, and I get I'd given Afonso uh, like a hold sign. Don't I don't want you running here. And that's the year that he hit 40 home runs and stole 40 some bases. So he was chasing that along that time period. So I kind of got my t- attention towards, you know, home plate and the pitcher. And I look, the pitcher lifts up, and here comes Surrey stealing third base. He's pitcher, catcher, catch it, throws it third, he's out. And so I kind of showed my frustration because I just kind of told him not to run. So I was like, man, Surrey, you know, it's not a good idea. And I kind of showed that. Well, he being a star player, he, he saw that, and he felt like I showed him up. Mm-hmm. And so he had, he had some words for me. And, um, and I said, that wasn't smart. I just told you not, not to run right there. And uh, so he was like, you know who I am? I'm Fonzo Serial. I said, I know who you are. And uh, I said, I'll tell you, what, go play defense, and we'll talk about it when you come back in. And uh, so he came back in, and he came right to me. And I said, Suri, I said, how do you want to be known, as a team player or a selfish player? The answer is obvious. Everybody right. would say player. And so I said, well, what you did right there was not a team thing. That was a selfish thing. I mean, I said, Nick's one of our best hitters. He's hot. I said, Nick's hits a gets a base hit. You're going to score on any base hit here. I said, if it's a two-run homer, then we're up one we're going into the ninth inning. We're trying to win a ball game. This is about the team. It's not about you achieving a 40-40 situation here. I said, so I want you to understand that if you want to be people to look at you as a team player, that wasn't smart right there. I said, you kind of went rogue and did your own thing. I said, now, if I'm wrong, I apologize. I said, but I want you to think about this. And if I'm right, then you let me know. And uh, he went two days, didn't talk to me, didn't speak to me. (laughs) We had a good relationship. (laughs) And you know what? But he came back that third day, and he said, he he, he, actually, he got on third base. And I don't know if they went out and talked to the pitcher or something, and he hugged me. He grabbed me and hugged me. And he apologized. And he said, you're right. And he said, you know what? All my years in baseball, no one has ever told me when I've done things right and when I've done things wrong. He said, no one tells me, especially when I made a mistake. He said, no one tells me anything because I'm a star player. They just let me play. And I said, well, I'm not like that. You know, I said, you know, when everybody wants to be seen in a specific way, I said, so we have to be willing to, to speak truth to, to, to guys, no matter who they are. But if you do it the right way, they respect that. And he respected that. And to this day, I mean, he, he sees me. We, I mean, we're tight, you know. And, but, but you got to speak truth. You can't be afraid. Well, that's, that's good, Tony. And I love what you said. You, you talked about anticipation, your three rules for infielders. Anticipation, what was your second one? It's uh, information, anticipation, application. Gotcha. And is that just something that you have picked up through the years that you've impl- Im- implemented with your guys? Yeah, yeah. I kind of, you know, when I became an infield coordinator, you know, just kind of a little, just a little something to, to give them. Uh, it's simple. Um, but, you know, the information, I want them to, we always talk about, you know, being ahead of the play, anticipating something happened. Well, get the information, you know, what's the speed of the runner so I can know what depth I have to play uh, if Billy Hamilton's hitting, I can't play on the grass. I got to be able to throw this guy out if it's a routine ground ball at me. You know, who's my pitcher? You know, is he a hard, hard thrower where guys are not catching up? Uh, is he a sinker ball that getting ground balls all day long? What's the count? You know, mm. understand what guys do in certain counts. Who has a two-strike approach? You know, that's all information 
things? You know, is it a rainy day? Is it a windy day? You know, how's it planned? You know, how's the infield? What's the, what's the surface like today? Is it a hardened surface? Is it thick grass? Where the, you know, all those things come into play, you know? And then situations too. Is it a double play scenario here? Do I have a first and third scenario with run on third? And what does he mean as far as the game and an inning? All of those things come into play. If the ball in the gap is run first, what do I need to do? What are my responsibilities? So before anything happens, I'm getting the information, you know, and then I anticipate something happened based on that information. And then when it happens, I think you have a greater chance of applying it mm. if you do the first two. Well, that's good. That's good stuff, man. We might uh, might borrow that this spring, Tony. Might, uh, might, that might be heard on a field near you, man. I don't, I don't know. But if the kids don't listen, they'll think we came up with it. So that'll be solid, man. That'll be solid. So you've got now you're beginning to manage you you in in and now your third base coach for the yep. Rangers, which we'll get into here in a second. How has your faith? Is it something that you, they know you go to baseball chapel? They know mm-hmm. you're a Christian in the off season. Or is your faith more to you than that, Tony? How does how does your faith play into all this? Because you're an amazing you're an amazing coach, mm-hmm. but how does your faith influence that? Well, for me, you know, I guess my 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 faith, as far as that's concerned, you know, I, they know they know that I go to chapel and all this and everything. They know how I walk and. As far as from a manager, you know, when I, when the thing about managers, they talk about sticking up for your players and, you know, you got to go out sometimes, you got to argue with the umpire, you got to get tossed every now and then. Uh, so they used to seeing a show when that comes about. And so I, I've gotten tossed. I've had situations where I've gotten into it with other managers and, and things like that. Uh, uh, you know, be angry, but sin not situation. But at the same time, every time I've had a situation where I've had tossed out of the game, the players come in and say, did you curse at him? <laughs> that's the first thing, that's the first thing they, they asked, did you curse? And um, and then I was there, I remember in, in I was in Triple A in 2012, I think, with the Nationals, and Greg Booker was <laughs> my pitching coach, and I, I had a team meeting, we were playing Lehigh Valley, and we had we had got, gotten it handed to us pretty good, and I kind of had enough, because we've had about a three or four day string of just not playing good baseball and not really giving the type of effort that I wanted. And, uh, and so I called them together and I set them down and I felt like I got into them pretty good. And uh, I just hit every area, every position, you know, pitching, hitting, defense, base running, outfield play, everything. I, I just went down and, and, you know, when I get into my meeting, sometimes I know I shouldn't call names, say, but I'm going to call some names today. And I'll call names and speak on it. And then Booker, he said, you know what? I've been in the game for a long time. And I've never heard a meeting where someone got on a team that hard and never said one curse word. Wow. He said, I mean, he said, and you you got everything, you got everyone's attention, and you hit them hard. You hit them right between the eyes. He said, but you never were to a point to where they could turn you off because you weren't yelling and screaming and cursing, but you were speaking from with passion and they got it. And so I just, you know, I just feel like your your faith, my faith is gonna is what sustains me. And that's what keeps me from from doing certain things. Uh, that's where my, my non-negotiables lie, you know, there, there are things in, in our life that we, we have to determine, you know, this is non-negotiable for me. And me, my representation of Christ 
is a non-negotiable as far as me me going against that. That's that's something that I'm out. I don't want anything to happen in my life that takes me outside of that. You know, you hear the old people that sometimes make me mad and I lose my religion. I don't want to lose my religion mm. based on any circumstance or any situation that I have to deal with in my life. Uh, I don't ever want to be out of control like that to where I forget that there's some God in me. And uh, I want to represent him because that one moment that I allow that to happen, and that's when people are going to see me and say, see that? If, if he's supposed to be who he says he is, then I don't want to be a part of that. And my testimony is, is all that I have. And I have to protect that and guard that. You know, and I remember us, uh, so I remember one time when you came in with uh, Syracuse and we met up for lunch here in mm-hmm. Atlanta and I asked you a question about, you know, your faith means so much to you. And, and here's, and here's what I'll say to everybody listening. The Tony, the Tony that I knew in 1987, 88 mm-hmm. is, is in 89 is the same Tony that's doing it today. We're both a little older and probably not quite who we were, who we were back then. Uh, you're, you're definitely, you look more like you did then than I do, but that's, that we'll leave that for another day. But um, so it means so much to you, but not everybody who walks in that clubhouse does faith mean something to how right. do you, how do you handle not imposing your faith on a kid who doesn't know the Lord or doesn't believe like you do. Right. We'll just take language. You brought up language, you know, a right. guy's ripping it, laying into it in the locker room. Do you hold everybody to the same standard you hold yourself? How do you, how do you handle that? No, you know what? I, I just treat people with love. Uh, no matter, no matter who they are, no matter what they're doing or what they're saying, I treat them with love. Uh, I don't judge anyone uh, because there was a time in my life that I was at that point. And, uh, you know, and I, I believe that, you know, for me, I saw people, I, I, I respected people that walked in the straight and narrow. I respected, you know, Bobby Richardson when I got to Liberty University. I hadn't seen that type of faith. I hadn't mm. seen, you know, people walk uh, that way. Uh, so for me, I don't want to judge anybody. I don't, and neither do I want to force feed uh, my beliefs or or, or my faith to, down anyone's mouth. I just believe that you know, and this was I think all Christians should do is walk worthy of what we're saying and walk worthy of God's will and God's way, and God will deal with everything else and everyone else that we encounter. You know, people see something different about me. God will open a door. There'll be an opportunity at some point that I can speak to that person. You know, I had some guy, a uh, player, uh, he, he used to wear the cross all the time. And then he was, he, his mouth was really foul, but he always would magnify that cross and, and show his cross off. And I just politely called him to my office one day. And he, he used to wear shirts. Like I have a shirt on a day that says blessed. And he used to wear shirts that, had scriptures on them and, you know, he was professing Christ and godliness, but I think he was making more of a fashion statement than a spiritual statement. And, and so I just, I just walked him in my office one day and, um, and I said, um, I said, you, that cross that you're wearing, um, Jesus was on that. He's not on that cross anymore. I said, and you wear the shirts that they have a message, a scripture on them. I said, 
So you're saying something about yourself that what you believe. I said, but at the same time, your actions don't line up with what you're wearing. I say, now, when people see what you have around your neck and what you're wearing on, on your chest, but then when they hear what comes out of your mouth, I said, it's not you that they're, they're, they're turning against. It's not you that they're turning against. I said, they're turning against my Savior. They turn against Christ based on the example that you give. And I said, if, if you want to do that, then you have to, you got to be a little different. I said, I, I'm just telling you, man, you got to be a little different. I said, I, 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 I just think it's, 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 it's not appropriate to wear all the, the stuff and then don't try to live it out or act it out or don't even talk like you know God. Uh, so, and he, he was cool with that. And he said, you know what, you're right. You're right. But I wasn't disrespectful. You know, I just told him, that you represent my Christ. Mm. But if you're going to represent him, you know, physically, then I need you to do it, man, because people are, people will walk away from Christ. They're not, it's not, it's not you that, 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 that they need for salvation. It's Christ, mm. you know? So, and he was cool with that. He was cool with that. But like you said, it's one of those situations where I knew this player. I had the right relationship with the player. I could sit him down and talk to him about things like that. But most of the time, you know, I just, I just love people. And I don't, I sit down and talk with the guy with the foul mouth and, and everything else. And I'm, I probably spend more time around those type of guys than the others. And they know exactly who I am. Now, sometimes when I come around, they won't, they won't curse. And then they apologize to me. I said, don't, don't apologize to me. I said, be who you are and, and follow what, what's in your heart. I said, you know, God's, God, God's the one that, that sees us and knows all about us. I said, I'm not God. So don't, you don't have to do it for me. Uh, but they recognize that. And there's usually something that happens. Baseball is a game of failure and the game that takes you on highs and lows. And there, there's always going to be a point in time in the season where somebody is going to be struggling with something, whereas whether something, their family or something in their professional life, and they're going to need someone to talk to. And they come to me, they call me, you know, if I'm not at the ballpark and, you know, and I've had this year has been awesome. Delano DeShields, you know, and Jeremy Jeffries, they pulled me aside and said, Hey, can you mentor me? You know, I, I want to get closer to the Lord. I want to get my walk with God. Right. Um, so God opens doors and, uh, he, he gives us opportunities, uh, to make a difference. And I think when we try to force that situation, then we hurt, we hurt it more than we help it. So I don't, I don't force feed it. Uh, I just want guys to, to, you know, professionally do what I ask them to do uh, in their personal lives. You know, I want them to be able to have the opportunity to to live their journey out and grow the same way I did. Because uh, everyone's life is a journey. And the things that we experience in our life, they, they build us for a greater purpose, whether it's something good or bad. Uh, I, I, I just believe that, and, I, and I'll use this analogy. If how can I really speak to a drug dealer or a drug user or someone who's uh, an addict who's trying to come clean if I've really never experienced it? So there are people who have been drug addicts and then they found Christ, then they can help people who have been in that situation because they can relate. Uh, it's like the same thing with cancer. You know, how can I really speak about 
cancer and how you deal with it and how you walk through faith to get over it had I never been through it. Um, and so I got a great understanding of that now because I have experienced that. And so I think sometimes through our life experiences, when we do find the Lord, we're able to help those uh, who otherwise you know, wouldn't listen to, to some people. You know, and I love that, Tony, and I, I love that transition. I know even before we went on the air, you, you talked about even when you're interviewing for a manager's job or a coaching job, mm-hmm. you let them know you up yeah. front. This is who I am. This is what I believe. You know, I want you to know that. And man, I, I think that says so much. And then in 2016, you have a doctor's appointment that really spun your world a little bit. And walk us a little through that journey of finding out that you had cancer and the timing of that and what that year long, you know, the highs and lows of that year, what, what that journey was like. i tell you what, you know, um, it's one of those things that, you know, I'm thinking I'm in great health and you know, work out. I, I ain't gonna say I eat perfect cause I like to eat, uh, what I like to eat, but you know, I would never think that 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 anything like that could happen to me. I'm one of those people that think, oh, I, I'm immune to that, you know, yeah. uh, because there's I have no history of that in my family or what have you. So uh, just, you know, 2000, after this season in 2015, I, I just know, noticed that I, I wasn't feeling up to par after the season. I was very tired. And I'd never really been that tired, but I just, I just thought it was, you know, a long season. We were in the playoffs and and the season ended in Toronto and it was very high, you know, uh, stress situations. Uh, I guess so a lot of energy has been exerted uh, physically this year. So maybe that's why I'm a little more fatigued, you know, and then my wife starts, oh, you're losing weight. I'm not losing no weight, you know, I kind of deny that. But the thing that that had happened during the season was, and I'm I'm very <clears throat> blunt and frank about it. I mean, I don't I don't sugarcoat you know anything that happened and how it happened because people need to know in case they have a, a similar situation. Uh, towards the end of the season, I developed hemorrhoids. I had never in my life had hemorrhoids, never, and I thought it was odd, and so it was just strange. And I wasn't you know my bowel movements weren't weren't as normal as they usually were. And uh, so I saw the team doc and he checked me out and he said, yeah, you've you got some hemorrhoids there. Um, and he said, but they should subside. And so, you know, I did the the, the natural thing, the cream the, and all that stuff. But I came home and they really didn't subside. And I was logging and doing things with my brothers and working and I was functioning every day, but I wasn't sleeping very well at night because I had a pain on the side of my leg, which I I thought it was like a sciatic nerve or something. So I was seeing a chiropractor. I was getting stretched out. I was doing things, but it wasn't going away. And the hemorrhoids was bothering me and the nerve thing was bothering me. And we had gotten into December, it was still bothering me. And so come January, you know, um, I told Stacey, we need to, she kind of convinced me to need to get checked. You just get see a doctor and see what's going on. If these hemorrhoids are that bad, let's get them cut out or whatever. And I didn't realize how hard it was to get an appointment. So she started calling. We couldn't get an appointment. We couldn't do anything. And she was very persistent. And finally, she got me in. And the doc checked me out. And he said the same thing. You have some hemorrhoids. He said, you may have an internal polyp. 
he said, let's just do a colonoscopy and and see what's going on. And if if it's an internal polyp, we'll just we'll ban it and you'll be good. And I said, fine. And so I came back and they did that and they did the colonoscopy and he found a tumor in my rectum. And right away, the doctor said from his experience, he felt like it was cancer. And um, and it that just kind of hit us. I mean, I, I woke up and Stacy was already talking to the doc and they rolled me in there and I knew something was wrong because, you know, she had been in tears. And so and I said, well, what's, you know, what's going on? And then the doc said, you know, we found a tumor and they were going to go back in and uh, I forget what they called it, what they were going to do the second time to confirm it. Uh, but they felt like it was cancer. And uh, I, I I don't know, Mike, because I tell you what, I did, I did not, I didn't really fret it maybe because my wife was there and I, I saw my wife, uh, you know, and she was kind of teared up and stuff. And I just kind of went right into a mode like, well, let's beat it. I did right away. And we got to beat it. And I had a nurse there and I can't remember her name, but she was like an angel. And because when I woke up, she said, uh, she said, you a man of faith, I can tell. And uh, she said, lean on your faith. And she said, lean on your faith. And I knew I said, okay, something's going on. And so I really didn't, you know, I came home and I, I know we had to go back for some checkups and things. Um, but it was, it was a tumor there in my rectum. It was, it was cancer. And, uh, it was this process, man. Um, the ownership where I, this is why I know that God puts you where you need to be. Um, because you know, I, and I, and I don't, I, I, I worked for some great organizations, the Pittsburgh Pirates, great organization, the Washington Nationals. Awesome. I mean, I couldn't have worked in a better place for better people in Washington, but I will tell you this. I was in, I was with the Texas Rangers organization for a reason um, because the ownership, when I called and, and, and I told uh, John Daniels, the, the general manager, what if, what was going on and Jeff Bannister, the manager, <clears throat> they were actually in a meeting with the owners <clears throat> and the ownership said, um, well, nothing against you doctors in Richmond. And he said, but we're going to get you to MD Anderson. Uh, it's one of the best facilities in the world. And, Whatever you need, don't worry about it. You need to get there. We will fly our jets down. We will pick you up. Mm -hmm. We will take you, you and your wife, as much and as often as need be. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, people say things and don't necessarily do things. Uh, so I, I knew we, they, they, he called and MD Anderson called right away and set up an appointment for me to be there. And then I was a little nervous to ask for them to fly me there because I'm like, I don't know if they really meant that. And uh and the GM said, hey, did you check with Neil and Ray? I said, no. He said they they meant what they said. He said they wouldn't have said it. And man, I tell you what, they flew Stacy out of Houston, flew us back home, and whatever we needed, they took care of it. Uh <clears throat> so <clears throat> I wouldn't have gotten the care that was top notch. I mean, Dr. George Chang was my surgeon. And he's considered one of the best in the world for this type of cancer um, that I had. And, you know, I was able to go to a place where they specialized on the type of cancer that I was dealing with. <clears throat> so to be able to have the best care 
and have an organization really wrap their hands, wrap their arms around you and give you everything that you need. Um, they told me, first and foremost, do not worry about your job. Just don't worry about your job. Your job's going to be there. Just get healthy and get back. We, we're not concerned about your job right now. <clears throat> and they really meant that. <clears throat> so <clears throat> then the, the players, I mean, everybody, I mean, they were so supportive. <clears throat> so you talk about being in a family environment. You know, we talk about brotherhood and, and family and taking care of each other. Well, you know, I was in a time where, where I could have isolated and just stayed home and did what I needed to do. But no, they were a part of this, this, this whole, you know, situation that I dealt with. They were a part of the process. They, they, they took care of me financially. They took care of me as far as brothers. Uh, they wrapped their arms around me and made me feel apart and, you know, I went to work every day um, through the chemo and the radiation. Um, it was a process, and I, I just had the best care you could have. But I will say this, you know, I, I, I'm i so thankful that that I had enough faith. You know, my favorite verse, and I had an opportunity to speak to the team, my favorite verse is 2 Corinthians 5 and 7, for we walk by faith and not by sight. And that was my favorite verse prior to being diagnosed. Um, but it's amazing how, you know, I had an opportunity to actually live it out. And I said, in life, you can see things as an obstacle or as, or as an opportunity. And for me, I choose for this to be an opportunity, first and foremost, to be who I said I am. Uh, because I profess Christ. You know, I profess godliness. I profess the power of faith and prayer to a lot of people over a lot of the years. Now, <clears throat> I've got to surrender what's going on in my life, <clears throat> something that I have no control over, something that I can't fix. I've got to surrender it and just give it to God wholeheartedly and leave it there and just leave it there and trust that he's got it and that he's already worked it out. <clears throat> and I tell you, man, I just ingrained myself with the word of God and with scripture in Isaiah 53 and 5, you know, if he was wounded for our transgression, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we're healed. You know, there was a little healing scripture book that Station and I used to read and speak the scriptures out loud daily, and we'd pray. And I had so much of the word of God in me, and I knew that I was going to believe God's report and not anyone else's report because his... His desire is that we would prosper and be in health. He know, he said, I know the plans that I have for you. And his plans is that we would prosper, you know. And he said he would not harm us. And so I trusted God, and I just believed everything that God said. So whatever a doctor said that I would have side effects from chemotherapy, I refused it. And I didn't have side effects from chemotherapy. You know, when they said radiation would do such and such to you and you're gonna you're not gonna be able to function, you're gonna be we might have to with a wheelchair and here and there, it's gonna the after the second week, you're gonna be so tired and worn down that you won't be able to eat, maybe. I said, sorry, doc, that's not gonna happen to me. You can ask my wife. I mean, I, I just refused all of it. I said, I understand all these things you have to say, 
I said, but they're not going to happen to me mm-hmm. because I'm protected by the blood of Christ. And, you know, I used to pray about it all the time. You know, the chemotherapy, I say, well, the chemotherapy will enter my body and it will do what it was designed to do. It will not harm any good cells and it will not harm any of my organs or any of my tissues. It will do what it was designed to do. It won't hurt my red blood cells and my white blood cells. It will just kill the cancer and that's it. It will not bring any harm upon my body. I refused that. And I said, no weapons that are formed against me shall prosper. I'm more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. And I kept saying these and I kept saying these scriptures and I kept speaking it and speaking it and speaking it and speaking it out of my mouth because there's power in our tongue to speak life and death. And, And so many times, when people are dealing with situations in their life, they, they, they are afraid to speak life into themselves. They are afraid to speak the word of God. And, you know, people pray and they hope. Well, we don't need to pray and hope. We need to pray and just believe and have faith because he said if we, if we, have, if we waver in our faith, any man who doesn't have faith, he shouldn't believe that he can receive anything from the Lord. And it also goes that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so faith, man, is such an intricate part of God being able to deliver us. I think faith is an action. It's a verb. Faith is, it calls us to, to activate the faith. We can just say, I have faith, but it calls us to act mm-hmm. on that faith. I asked God one time for healing. And then from that point, I thank God. And to stop asking him for the same thing over and over every day. If I believe that he's going to do it, just ask him once and then start thanking him. And I say, Lord, I'm just going to just trust you. And I say, what, what I believe that's going to happen spiritually and what I, what's going to happen physically to my body hasn't manifested itself. But I'm just patiently waiting on you. And the kicker to this, this whole situation was the tumor at the end in August when we went in for the surgery. That Friday, that Thursday, we did scans and met with the doctor on Friday. And he said, well, the tumor's still there. It's pretty, still pretty significant. And I hope I can, you know, connect, reconnect you where you don't have to wear a permanent ostomy bag. And I said, doc, I'm not going to wear a permanent bag. Uh, you're going to reconnect me. And, um, and he said, like, well, well, you know, I think I can. He said, but... The tumor is still pretty significant, and I won't know until I get in there. I said, well, I know. Because he had asking me, had you done any research? I said, no, I haven't done any research because I'm, I'm not going to wear a, a permanent bag. I said, it's, gonna, it's temporary, and, um, and it'll be gone. And um, so we went back to the hotel that Friday after we met with the doc, and my surgery was coming up that Monday. And I prayed, and Stacy and I prayed, and I said, Lord, this is your time, Lord, to show up and show out. And the doctors can see that only you can do what you can, what you can do and that they, they have no control. Monday, during the surgery, seven and a half hours surgery, the doctor came out and he met with Stacy during that time. And he said that tumor that was there Friday, this Monday, it was pretty much down to just scar tissue. And he said, I've pretty much cleaned the margins. I felt like I got everything clean and he felt like everything was good. I mean, so the tumor had been there. I don't even know how many years because initially we, Stacy asked the doctor, you know, how long has this tumor been his body? And the doctor said it could have been five plus years or so because it was a slow growing. Yeah. But however, 
through all the radiation, all the chemotherapy, all the treatments, the tumor had reduced, but it hadn't shrunk significantly. And this was a whole pretty much eight months worth of, of treatment. Okay, from that Friday, a Saturday, a Sunday, and then a Monday morning, when it's time for the doctor to go in there and remove the tumor, God already pretty much did it. Wow. And that's how I know how good God is, man, because that's God. There's no other explanation. I've got chill bumps right now because that there's no, no other way yeah. to explain that. That's God. You know, that's what God does. And when you trust him and when you believe in him, he can do anything. There's nothing hard. There's nothing impossible when you just trust him, man, and believe. And I refuse not to believe. So you know, and, and it's so funny, Tony, because, uh, you know, I think if, if we'd have said that, I think the first time I saw you managing, y'all were in Macon. I think you were with the uh-huh. Crawdads, and y'all were playing out in Macon. It's the first time we'd get reconnected in years. And, you know, and I think if, if we even could have had that conversation that day, you have always been about making much of God, not much of Tony, but mm-hmm. much of God. You wanted to use your life to make much of God. And then God has you on a route. You wouldn't have chosen. Stacy, right. I know, and T wouldn't have chosen that you're you're now you're now facing something that was pretty daunting. And That's man, right. your faith, Tony, probably more than ever became a very talked about deal mm-hmm. was how yeah. you faced it. And I, I watched so many interviews with your players and with the guys there in Texas and guys that have been in the Nats organization with you and guys that you've had influence over all these years talking about, man, what I learned most out of this was watching Tony and and seeing your faith lived out. Do you regret now having to go through what you went through? No, I don't. I don't regret it, man, because, uh, you know, I always say, you know what? God received the glory. And so I'm thankful. I'm thankful. I, I don't regret it, you know, and uh, because, he, you know, no one no one can control what happens to them all the time. I mean, that things happen in our lives. And I, like, cause I was like, how did I get that? The doctor said, I don't know. They don't, they don't have a clue how I got cancer or how I dealt with that. No one, there's no history in my family, uh, what have you, you know. And But somehow I dealt with it. I went through it. Uh, I don't believe it's something from God. I, that's it's from the enemy because God didn't design me this way. Uh, but I do. I just do this that in our life we experience things and we go through things. And Paul said, in all circumstances, I've learned to be content. You know, and so I was content uh, with with what I had to go through and what I had to deal with. But one thing I want to know is like, how can I honor God through all of this? Because God needs to get the glory no matter what we deal with. Uh, if, if it becomes personal and it comes about me, but then it's a sad story. And then it's a story where it's a pity party. And it's a story where I need people, you know, pat me on my back and, and, and feeling sorry for me. But when it becomes about God, it's how can I glorify him? And how can I walk through this in faith? Because we, we, we as Christians, man, when, when everything is peaches and cream, you know, we love God and we can shout hallelujah and, and praise God and, and just walk in faithfulness and, and we can just, you know, just put on the whole show. 
But what about when you're walking through a trial in your life, man? How do you deal with it? You know, how do you go through it then? You know, can people see God in you then? You know, I want people to see God in me, even through the midst of a fire. You know, that the three Hebrew boys, they 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 were willing to get burnt up. They they were not gonna bow down, they weren't gonna deny their God, you know. So even in the fiery furnace, they they trusted God. And That's if right. I even if he, if he doesn't even save us from this fire, you know, so be it. You know, we're gonna trust God, and 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 He sent an angel to cool the cool the flames. So, I want to trust God, man, in, in any and all situations. Because if I die, Mike, I, I want people to know that I died in faith. I died glorifying God and giving God the praise and the honor for what He has done. Because you can't kill Christians. I, I don't worry about dying because. There's something better beyond death for us. That's right. Uh, and I know that. So there's no fear in that, you know, and I didn't want to walk through it in fear. And that's what the enemy tries to do is he tries to get us to live in fear. And they, but then first Timothy, second Timothy one and seven, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and of a sound mind. So we don't need to do anything out of fear. And uh, I just trust God. And I want people to, to understand that. And I wanted to know for myself, could, you know, who am I? Who 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 truly am I? And I, I found myself more going through cancer than I have ever have in my life. I learned more about who I was dealing with adversity than I ever knew. So pretty much 48 years of my life, I didn't really even know who I was. It took one year and 49th, the 49th year of my life to find out really, really what I was made out of and who I was in the Lord. You know, I, I, I read one of Ken Rosenthal's articles and he talked about even Joey Gallo, one of your up and coming stars there mm -hmm. in Texas, that gosh, what is he T and Casey's age, I think, um, yep. you know, going with you to chemo one day. He didn't go to BP, yes. didn't go, yep. he rode with you. And, and he talked about, you know, that he said, I think, I think his quote was, we don't really see everything going on in the world that most people see. He just mm -hmm. kind of wanted me to be thankful for what we do for a living to see another side of life. And then yeah. I watched, and then I remember I was tuned in the day that the Rangers clinched the division that mm -hmm. year. And yeah. we were watching, I was watching to see if you were there, you weren't there. And they mm -hmm. couldn't understand why the guys weren't celebrating in the clubhouse. And then they mm -hmm. said, I think they're calling their third base coach, Tony Beasley. Mm -hmm. And what was it like when the guys held the phone up to hold the celebration till you could be there with them? What was that feeling like, Tony? That was tremendous. You know, that was, that was, um, year before last and they had clinched in Oakland and I didn't go on the trip. I did chemotherapy and, um, I stayed back and, uh, I, I knew they were probably going to clinch. Uh, but I was watching the game on TV and they, they won, they got the final out and, um, celebrate. So I was like, they ready to go inside and celebrate now, you know? So I was kind of sitting there by myself in Texas and, um, just, you know, I was happy. I was happy for, for the team and everything that they've accomplished uh, that second year, last year, last year, not last, not this past year, but year before last. And um, then my phone rings and it's, it's Brandon, who's our clubhouse guy. And so I said, well, Brandon's FaceTiming me. And so I just figured Brandon would just FaceTime me off to the side, just, you know, just congratulate me and making me a part of it. Well, it was Adrian Beltre who had the phone and then all the guys were behind them and they, everybody was in on the picture and Adrian just, he just said, Beach, you know, 
we want you to be a part of this because we, we couldn't have done this without you. You know, you've mm. inspired us so much this year and everything that you're going through and the way that you go through it. He said, we, we wish you were here, but we know you are. He said, but and we just want to make you a part of it, man. And, and it was, it was, it was incredible. I mean, it was one of those moments where like I talk about family and, and being where I was supposed to be. I know what God put me where he needed me to be and with the people he needed me to be around. I just kind of brought it all together and said, this is, this is God, man. This is, this is not about me. It's about, you know, what God is doing in my life and through me. And, you know, these guys were, they were, they were tremendous. I mean, I, I, I can't really explain what it meant. Cause it was just, it was one of those moments that you like, why? I mean, why would they even think about me mm. at a time like this? Why am I even on their mind? You know? But you know, it's just it's just stuff like that. Like Odor, one night, like I get a text out him from him, like in the middle of the night, and just say "love you," and he sent the picture with him, like rounding third base, and him and I high five, and you know, just I say, "Okay, he's thinking about me," and you know, late at night, why? Uh, so it just shows that you know how much they care and uh, how much that they went through the process with me. Uh, so it's a family atmosphere, man. Texas Rangers organization, players, I can't say enough uh, about what they mean to me and because they, they showed me their true colors. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. And you, yeah. you you end up, you come back last year, had another great year, third base coach, sang the national anthem. For those mm-hmm. of y'all that don't know, Bees can rip it. <laughs> the only time we didn't like hearing him sing was late at night. We're all trying to go to sleep, but the man, the man, the man can sing. So you had a great year. We don't know what's left in your career. You may spend the rest of your career in Texas. God may may open a door somewhere else. Yeah, I, we don't know. Yeah, at the end of it all, Tony, mm-hmm. when when guys are looking back on your career, when mm-hmm. T and and uh, Stacy are talking about you. What do you want people to say about Tony Beasley? You know, man, the thing that that I that I would respect the most is is just that people to just know that that he he was who he said he was. Uh, uh, you know, you didn't have to worry about you know who I was as a man, um, how I walked, how I lived. Uh, I lived my life, and I want people to see Christ in me, and you know, we ought to be the salt of the earth and to know that I made a difference in people's lives. I mean, that's, that's what's, that's the most important thing. If, if I did anything that, that, that drew somebody closer to Christ or, or made someone even just curious to find out, you know, what it was all about and who he is all about. Um, that's, that's enough. Uh, baseball is a beautiful platform that God has given me. Uh, but you know, I've got to honor him and glorify him in all things. And so, you know, if I achieve things in baseball, awesome. You know, if I get the opportunity to be a manager one day and win a World Series, that's those are great accolades. But nothing, nothing for me uh, would mean more than just knowing that he was a true man of God. And that's that's the most important compliment. Of, I think that's the highest accolade that anyone could ever get. Doesn't it make you feel good to know there's men like Tony out there? You know, when you were flipping by a game on the MLB Network or even last year at SunTrust Park when the Rangers were in town and Bees was in the third-base coaching box, you never dreamed a guy like that stood there, did you? You know, I think it's easy to categorize people and we go, well, you know, 
that that's just a guy who's really good at baseball. Yeah, and he really is. He's really good at baseball. He's a he's a winner from the word go. But more than that, man, he's just a guy who lets Jesus shine through everything about him. You know, whether we're trying to be just a great parent, trying to be a great principal, trying to be a great business owner, trying to be a great coach, trying to be a great agent, trying to be a great whatever the field is that we're in. Men like Tony are a perfect example of when we live out our faith, I believe, the way that God created us to live it out, though others may not agree with it, though others may not like it, they will always respect it because your love that you're showing is Jesus' love, and it's a love that draws people. It's a love that makes people wonder, well, if they could love me this way, then how much more does God have for me? That's the way it looks when Jesus' love flows through you. And so many times, you know, I think we think just the opposite. If my faith is too apparent to others, it will be it will be divisive. And, and yes, it can be. There will be times it will be divisive. But more often than not, we live in a world of people that are dying to see what Jesus looks like. Well, why not show him in the area of leadership? Why not show our children? Why not show the people that we work with? You know, in every interview, there's always a word that I think of and a, and a verse that I think of. With Tony, it was faith. Man, just the faith when he encountered not just the trials and obstacles he's encountered in baseball, but the trials and obstacles he's encountered in life, the faith that Tony has to believe that God has more for him. You know, there's a passage in Scripture that says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. My goodness, I can't imagine that Tony is not pleasing to his Father in heaven. He looks down and says, that is what I'm talking about. Thank you, Tony Beasley, for sharing your life, for sharing your story, and sharing your journey with us, because we are all better for it. Well, next time we get back together in episode 13, you're going to get to visit with a good friend of mine, Randy Gravitt. Randy is a leader's leader. He teaches leadership, he's passionate about leadership, and he lives leadership. So I hope you'll invite somebody to join and listen in with you. You can share this with your friends. You can leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. But once again, thanks for joining us on Lynch with a Leader. And my prayer is you'll go out today and be the leader and live the leader that God created you to be. Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com.